Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. I'm so grateful you've joined us for our study through the doctrine of repentance. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon on the doctrine of repentance. Feel like really deep waters to you. There are going to be parts that that might sound a little bit foreign to you. That's okay. I'm wanting to bring to life some of the works of the Puritans, and summer's a good time to do that. I assure you that if you dig deep, if you listen in, your soul is going to be richly blessed. And I promise that the theology that we get, the exposition of the word that we get over the next three months is going to forever change your perspective on repentance, what it is, and why it has to be the moment-by-moment experience of our lives. It's not just something that you do at some crusade or concert, and then you sign your name in your Bible, date it, and say, that's the day that I repented. Repentance is the life of the Christian. And so let's dig in. Thomas Watson, 1620-ish to 1686. He lived about 66 years on this planet. He was a Puritan preacher and author who studied laboriously at Cambridge. He mastered Hebrew and Greek, Latin and English, had a command of scripture. He also had a stunning grasp of the early church theologians who he would quote spontaneously. He casually references obscure Bible verses throughout his sermons, along with history, botany, medicine, physics, classical literature, logic, and various trades. The guy's brain was a sponge. He absorbed and regurgitated what he learned. Charles Spurgeon, one of my all-time favorite preachers from church history, I've never heard him preach. I've just read his sermons. He wrote of Watson that Thomas Watson was one of the most concise, racy, I like that word, illustrative and suggestive of those eminent divines who made the Puritan age the Augustan period of evangelical literature. A happy union of sound doctrine, heart-searching experience, and practical wisdom throughout all his works. Watson stands above most Puritans with his use of the English language. At 27 years old, he married Abigail, who bore seven babies to their family, four of whom died early in their lives. During the English Civil War, he was thrown into prison with Christopher Love, another one of my heroes, for attempting to restore the monarchy in England. Christopher Love was beheaded, but Thomas Watson was released after he pled for mercy. He preached for 16 years, during which his personal fame spread and his church filled. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, his flock fired with holy zeal for their eternal welfare. Can you imagine? It just puts a picture in my mind. A group of people who fired with holy zeal for their own eternal welfare. Though he was city famous 
as a godly man and a genius, Thomas Watson was preeminently known as a man of prayer. A man of prayer. At 42 years old, the act of uniformity in England ejected Watson from his church. And there are a series of sermons called the Farewell Sermons that we've collected from men who at this time facing ejection from... You guys can come up in the front row if you're getting blinded by the light. Blinded by the light. No? Okay. You're going to suffer. All right. He's ejected from his pulpit, and there are these farewell sermons. Three of these farewell sermons are from the hand of Watson. Two are from his final Sunday with his church, and the third is from that Tuesday, two days later. He got to squeeze in one more sermon with his body before he was taken out by the government. The first sermon is on loving one another and loving our enemies. The second is on perfecting holiness in the fear of God with countless adorable praises of his congregation's affection. He just absolutely drowns them in his thankfulness to God for the affectionate church that they had become. And the third one on that Tuesday was all about rewarding the righteous and woes on the wicked for each will eat the fruit of his or her own deeds. The man exposited from every possible angle of the Bible. He gets ejected. He's now illegal to be in the pulpit, but fines and imprisonment won't gag this preacher. He goes underground. Again, Spurgeon says, in barns, kitchens, outbuildings or dells and woods the faithful few gathered to hear the message of eternal life bread eaten in secret is proverbially sweet and the word of god in persecution is peculiar i can't even say that word i'm going to just say particularly delightful because peculiar i can't say it i'm embarrassed i can't say it. can you guess what led to Watson's reinstatement as a legal preacher in England? You would be right after what we've gone through recently to guess that it was tragedy. The Great Fire of London, roughly four years later, brought about his reinstatement to preach in a church. And here we are, not wanting uncomfortable tragedies to occur. Granted, we get why we don't want those. And yet God is using all of those things. He's using them. And God brings Watson back into the pulpit after 10 years of ejection, ultimately. 10 years. Most of that time, it probably felt like he was, he was wasted. This great mind that we're reading hundreds of years after makes you wonder. If in his not-so-long life, he felt wasted at times. God then brings a man by the name of Stephen Charnock. Okay? And those of you that are theology nerds know that Thomas Watson and Stephen Charnock are big names in theology. We have two historic titans of theology that you couldn't find in the same city, let alone the same church. God brought them to serve together. 
These rock star pastors and theologians who each wrote their own bodies of divinity, their own systematic theologies. Charnock is there for a few years. He dies, and then Watson's health begins to decline. His health fails. He retires to the countryside and then suddenly died in 1686 while he was deep in prayer. He was out praying and he passed away. Spurgeon again says that Watson went from glory to glory and he likely didn't even know that he had died because he was communing with the Lord. And he speaks to us now. That's who we get to hear for the next several weeks. I'm praying that the doctrine of repentance would come to life for us tonight. The two great graces essential for Christian life are faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are the two wings by which one flies to heaven. Faith and repentance nourish spiritually like food and water sustain physically. Faith and repentance. Now, the focus of this study is entirely on repentance. Of course, faith is going to come up here and there, but our focus is solitary. We are only focused on repentance. Chrysostom, an early church father, chose repentance as his sole subject to preach to the emperor, to the emperor. Augustine, another early church father, would copy down psalms of repentance from the Bible before bed, and he would read them until he went to sleep in his tears. Repentance is never out of season. Repentance is always in season. Children of God use repentance more than artists use their brushes more than soldiers use their swords. Repentance is more practical than anything. It's most practical. Repentance is theology put into practice. You see, fools love to get these theological controversies going about, and they love to debate. But repentance, repentance will not be smothered in some class. It will not be smothered in some desk. It must be preached. It must be insisted. It must be obeyed. We must repent. Repentance is purgative. That's a big word. The root word there is purges. Repentance is purging. Repentance is, and I'm borrowing Thomas's language here, the laxative of the soul. Okay, I know it's not a pretty image. I told you it was going to be colorful. Now, don't fear the effectiveness of this pill that we call repentance. Chrysostom, that early church father, he said, strike your soul, strike your soul, hit your soul, strike it, and it will escape death by that stroke. Some of you have been professing Christ. Many of you, hopefully, are actually in Christ, and you found that your life in Christ has, has not been happy would you be happy? Would we be happy? Well, here's the key. Be most miserable over sin. Happiness in God is found in misery over sin. Let your eyes swim in tears. Ask yourself, interrogate yourself. If sin does not grieve you, why does it not grieve you? 
And God's spirit moves in those repentant waters. What tears evaporate sin and they quench God's wrath in our relationship with the Lord. Repentance cultivates godliness in the soul and it catches God's mercy. Repentance. The more that we regret and the more that we vexate in our hearts now, the less that we'll regret and the less that we'll vex later. What do we hate more than sin? Find that thing and identify it as an idol. Worldly tears. Crying for worldly reasons. Worldly tears just fall to the dust. But godly tears of repentance, God promises to keep in his bottle. He cherishes them. He remembers those. That's Psalm 56. Perhaps you view holy weeping as unnecessary. Tertullian said that he was born for no other reason than to repent. Will your sin drown or will your soul burn? Some of these statements are viciously strong, but we need to hear them. I needed this this afternoon and I'm going to need it tomorrow morning. And don't say, oh, repentance is so difficult. Anything excellent demands labor. Cheap things are easy. I mean, we dig and we sweat for gold, don't we? And should we not fight to heaven rather than sleep to hell? I mean, these are stark contrasts that wake us up. What wouldn't the damned give to hear one last preacher offer God's mercy for their repentance? A.W. Tozer Centuries after Thomas Watson died, wrote, People on earth hate to hear the word repent. You might be sitting here tonight hating that repent, repent, repent is the repeated refrain. But, Tozer says, people in hell wish they'd hear it just one more time. What sighs and groans would not bombard heaven from hell? What worlds would they not flood with their tears? But it's too late. They can grieve their sin, but they cannot gain God's grace. You, this side of the grave, make peace with God and repent. Tomorrow may be death. Today must bring Repentance. Today is the day of salvation. You look at the saints of Scripture and they would sacrifice their desires and they would wear sackcloth and hope of white robes. You think of Christ's prayer. It made Peter repent. And Peter baptized himself in tears. Is there not enough reason for us to repent for our nation in which we live? America or Romania, for that matter. Does the black and hideous smoke of our nation's sin reach heaven? And should we not fear the thunder of God's judgment? 
Will this not excite humiliation in our slumbering souls? Do we sleep like watchmen up in the bird's nest of a ship as the entire vessel rocks with the winds of God's wrath, threatening destruction? Jeremiah cried in Lamentations 2, Let tears stream down like a torrent, like a storm, day and night. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes, no respite. When we see the tragedies going on in our nation, the sins that are so so openly uh, obnoxious, we should repent ourselves. I, I don't know about you, but as I, as I listen to talk shows or as I watch the news and I see um, sin paraded in the streets, I, 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 I'm astonished. But then I quickly remember that sin is in me. That sin is here. And it makes me hate the sin of my pride, the sin of my lusts, the sin of my discontentment. Oh, that we would pray. Tonight's just to excite the study. That we would pray sin would be shot to death. And that we would find true happiness in Christ. Do you remember how Tertullus accused Paul when Paul was brought before him in Acts 24 verse 5? It says, we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You remember the spokesman of the high priest and the elders. He condemns Paul of sedition. And so Paul defends himself before Festus and Agrippa. He raises his hand to speak in chapter 26, verse 2. And he politely addresses three matters. He nearly converts King Agrippa. We're reminded that it's not man that converts man. It's only God. But King Agrippa appears to be right on the cusp. First, Paul details his life before conversion. Verse 5 of chapter 26. According to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, Paul says. That false fire of his religious zeal had scorched all who had stood in his way. Verse 10 of 26. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. His life before repentance his life before conversion. Secondly, he describes his conversion. Verse 13 of chapter 26. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. And what was this radiance? Was it anything except King Jesus himself appearing to Paul? Verse 14. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? You see, the body had been hurt on earth. So the head cried from heaven. So intimately, 
he associates with us, his people. And overwhelmed, Paul says, verse 15, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In an instant, self-righteousness vanished from Paul. Instantly, all hope leapt up from himself to Christ alone and the righteousness of the God-man alone. He realized that he was altogether under the condemnation of God and his only hope was the grace of this Lord beaming in his eyes. So he talks about his conversion. And then thirdly, he describes his life after conversion Verses 16 and following, Jesus said, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen. Paul went from persecutor to preacher. A choice instrument in the king's hand, Paul endeavored to work as much good as he had done damage previously. He persecuted saints to death. He'll preach sinners to life. Everywhere he preached repentance to Jews until rejection. And then he preached repentance to Gentiles. And what was his message? He says it in verse 20 of chapter 26 in Acts. They should repent and turn to God. Practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, it raises a question for us that we should establish before we go any further. What comes first? What comes first? Faith or repentance? What comes first? Well, I want you to imagine yourself in a dark room. The door is open and someone with a candle walks up the hall. Do you not see the glow first before you see the actual flame in their hand? We do, we do, don't we? We see the glow of repentance first, but God lit the flame of faith before we see the glow of repentance. Repentance is an exercise of the living. Repentance is not an activity of the dead. How can souls live except by God's grace gift of faith. God gives the gift of faith in Christ, and that faith provokes us to repent. Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10, all quote Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous shall live by faith. No repentance sprouts from a heart without the seeds of faith which alone produces repentance unto salvation. Acts 27, verses 44, verse 44, recalls those planks and the debris that was scattered from the shipwreck that Paul suffered with those, what, 295 men or whatever. We have one plank. We have one shrapnel, and it's repentance. We're told repentance. Think about this, brothers and sisters. What did the Baptist preach? What did the king himself preach? What did all the apostles preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Peter preach directly after Pentecost? Repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. 
What did Peter say to that magician in Acts 8? He says, your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. My friends, we need our heart's intentions to be forgiven. If you're under teaching that's telling you it's just the things you do or don't do that are sins, you're being poorly taught. It's the heart's intentions which require repentance. The desire itself demands <laughs> repentance. Bless you. <laughs> Hebrews 6 calls repentance a foundation, a, an elementary doctrine. You know what's really fascinating? Here we're reading a Puritan from hundreds of years ago, and this is considered deep theology to your mind and mine, but this is spiritual pre-K. This is spiritual pre-K. This, this is basic. This is ABCs. Religion on any other foundation is doomed. What's the first word in Christ's first sermon? Good. You're catching on. What's his final charge before he goes to heaven in his ascension? He says, repentance must be preached in my name. How important is repentance, therefore? What did the apostles preach? Mark 6, verse 12, that men should repent. Repentance, by the way, is God's grace. God leads to repentance by his kindness. Apart from God's grace, it's just sin and perish. But because of God's grace, it's repent and live. You see, the law demands personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. And if you do not, if you fail, personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, it's cursed for you. Galatians 3, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Paul is citing Deuteronomy 27, 26 to say not let he who fails to perfectly obey now repent. There's no hope in it. It's just let him be accursed. There's no good news in that. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says the soul who sins will die. But repentance you see, I'm, I'm proving the point here that repentance is grace from God. Don't hear repentance as this weighty law that burdens us. Repentance is grace from God to say, I am a sinner and I hate that I'm a sinner and I want to turn from it. I want to see my sin. I want to hate, have hatred of my sin. I want to have sorrow for my sin. I want to turn from it. We're going to be getting into that more deeply as time goes on. But how does God exercise repentance in the soul? And we close here. Two things. By God's word and by God's spirit. By God's word and by God's spirit. The word of God preached is God's engine to effect repentance. Do you understand how privileged we are? And I'm not just saying this because I'm up here teaching, okay? 
you understand how privileged we are to be sitting here and hearing the word of God preached? This is the highest privilege that any human being on the planet experiences. Not all the luxury, not all the power in the world competes with this lofty station in this room at this very moment. The word of God preached is the only engine God gives to effect repentance in our heart. Jeremiah 23 verse 29, God says, is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Acts 2.37 says, when they heard Peter preach, Joel 2, Psalms 16 and 110, and 2 Samuel 7, they were pierced to their heart. Hearts shattered by God's hammer. Hearts melted by God's fire. But the word of God by itself is not enough. Having your Bible on your shelf is not enough. God's Spirit, God's Spirit is the wind in the pipe organ of the preacher. Without God's Spirit, the pipes fall silent. Scripture says, while Peter was still speaking these things, Acts 10.44, my contacts are getting blurry, The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the word. That's what God's spirit loves to honor. Not this chaos that you see out there. This hula baloo of stuff that has no foundation in God's word whatsoever. But are just experiential, emotional euphoria. Preachers can reach the ear. Teachers can reach the ear. Friends can reach the ear. Only the Spirit of God preaches to the heart. Only He can dissolve the heart with tears. In Hebrew, Jonah spoke five words in Nineveh, but the Spirit converted the entire city. Without the Spirit of God, the greatest evangelist is music to deaf ears. How does the same earth sweeten grapes and embitter salt? Why do some grow by the word as others grow worse by it? The Holy Spirit carries his word to one and not the other. 1 John 2.20 says, You And I pray this is true of everyone in this room. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. The scripture without the spirit is a chariot without the horse. But with the spirit operating through God's word, it's unstoppable. It's invincible. It's immortal. It's work and you cannot be thwarted. And so my encouragement as we begin this series is to let God's spirit lead you, drive you to repent as you hear God's word. Would you pray with me?
Father, we ask that as we launch this series tonight, I'm sure it was heavy, it was dense, it was meaty, it was lofty, it was large. Oh God, we needed the impact of tonight, the impression of tonight. It's not so much about memorizing certain phrases or statements. Father, we need your spirit through your word to be the hammer, to be the fire. Shatter our hearts and melt us by your love, we pray, as you lead us to repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ, the good and gracious King, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we come confessing. Oh, he's wonderful. And we sing now together to him. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. We meet on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Tune in next Tuesday for the next episode in our series. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.